This is for Clementine and Otis. So shout out to our sponsors today, Indosol. They make uh, they get recycled motor vehicle tires and they turn them into footwear. But like more importantly, like Indosol are leaders in the environmentally friendly and conscious fashion sector. And uh, Indosol have distributors worldwide. So go to Indosol.com. That's I-N-D-O-S-O-L-E.com and use code THT for a discount and get your pair and join the movement. Next up is Crush Organics. They make CBD products and CBD products are now officially legal in Australia as they are in many parts of the world. So it's time to start improving your health and well-being. Do the research. CBD is an amazing natural supplement. It's helped me so much with my sleep, recovery and reducing like feelings of stress and anxiety. So head over to CrushOrganics.com. That's K-R-U-S-H-O-R-G-A-N-I-C-S.com and use code THT at checkout for an epic 40% discount fast shipping worldwide and lastly kingpin skate shop they're locally owned they're not a franchise skate shop kingpin stock carefully selected brands clothes skate decks hardware and especially shoes you're the best shoe range ever and again locally owned and legit check out their online store that's kingpinstore.com that's k-i-n-g-p-i-n-s-t-o-r-e.com and use code thd at checkout for a 15 percent discount and free shipping for orders over 25 bucks Australian. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Today's guest is James McMillan. James is a father, surfer, artist, author, and someone who is considered a creative visionary in the world of surfing, and I quote, an advocate of the healing power that it provides. Inspired and in tune with his surroundings, James is also the founder of the Byron Bay Surf Festival, an event that celebrates the diverse and creative intricacies that embody surf culture beyond just catching waves. Today, James is with me live from his home in Byron Bay, New South Wales, Australia, to share his journey, experiences, challenges, and hopes for the future. James McMillan, welcome. Shannon, hey, mate. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. And um, yeah, it's exciting to have a chat and see what comes of it. Man, I'm stoked, and I'm just really grateful that our mutual friend, Kirk Jenkins, connected us. I really... I take those kind of recommendations seriously, you know, so. Yeah, that was really cool of him, yeah, because I'd heard about your podcast actually, like I said, when Christian posted that he had done that one with you and he's a mate of mine, so I was, um, I checked it out back then and then Kirk said he'd just done one and I saw it was you and I was like, rad, love it, and then he said, hey, I hooked it up, you want to do it? And I said, I'd love to do it, love to have a chat with you. So, yeah, it's cool, man. Is Christian Stern someone that you've drawn creative inspiration from, would you say? I think I first met Christian at the Deus Temple in Changu. And it was when I'd just been to Japan and I had an art show on in Japan with Andy Davis, actually. And we'd then gone from Japan to Bali and Andy had an art show on at the Deus Temple. So I was up there the night of the opening and I, I think I'd actually seen me and my wife do a bit of yoga and we both studied yoga. I'd heard about Christian in kind of yoga circles. We knew he was teaching down in Changu at the time, I think, or he might have just swapped over to Ulu at that stage, I'm not sure, but it was around about then. And then I saw him 
at um, the base temple. I got up and said day, and that was the first time I met him, actually person to person, not just online looking at bits and pieces and stuff like that. And I was inspired by his lifestyle as a whole, you know, because he was living in Bali and he was, you know, comes from a yogic background, which was really inspiring. And he was an artist. I just thought, wow, he looks like he's living a really great lifestyle in a beautiful place and it was things that I sort of was doing in my life a little bit too. So I'm sort of drawn to people that are doing similar things to see, you know, how they do it, what they experience when they're doing it and then what what it gives them and stuff like that. And, yeah, so I saw him there and, yeah, just a good day and had a chat and then I started following more on Instagram and seeing his bits and pieces. And, And then we met up at Ulu probably the next year or something, I don't think it was that year. And I bumped into him at, I think the first time we bumped into each other after that was in Ubud actually in a cafe there. I can't remember which cafe it was, a really cool vegan cafe. And I remember looking over at Christian's table and he had three drinks lined up, you know, like a shot of turmeric, a shot of something else and like a green juice or something. Yeah, and we just connected from there and actually went around to his house in Ubud that day. I remember now we jumped on the bikes and he said, come around and went around there and saw his pad there, which was beautiful. And yeah, we just sort of kept in touch from there. I love your style of artwork. Who would you say your major artistic influences are? My dad was an artist. He was a painter and a sculptor. And my sister actually did a lot of art too when we were younger. So I was always inspired by her because she was such a good drawer. Like she could draw from reality, draw people, draw things, draw, draw trees, draw our house. And I was a pretty crappy drawer from reality. I didn't really, I couldn't do it. Not, not in a realistic way anyway. So probably my earlier influences with my sister and my dad. And then I started drawing myself you know, I mean, I drew as a kid and you do your little scribbles and stuff like that and stick figures and just play, you know, which is probably the best mindset to be in. But then I thought I actually want to do what my dad did and I want to draw and he's the portraits of my mother and stuff like that, like really good realistic ones. And I started trying to draw people. I used to um, go, we used to skateboard in the city a fair bit. We'd catch a train from Cronulla and go to Town Hall and, and King's Cross and we'd skate around there and find ledges and things like that when we weren't surfing. And I used to go there sometimes by myself and I'd sit on the steps at Town Hall with my diary or just a visual diary and I'd just pick people that were sitting down and I'd try and draw them. That was, the, that was when I first started sort of drawing. I was around 17 at the time and then when I was 18, my dad passed away. He died of cancer. I wanted to share that with him as I got older. I thought this would be a cool thing to share with dad. And anyway, he passed away and, and I got all his painting kit when he passed away, basically his oil paints and he had all these handmade brushes. Some of them like had one hair on them and things like that. Like he was a freak, I think. Like specifically for creating a certain feel to the stroke? I think so. I think and for creating fine lines. So when I got that gear off my grandmother, I sort of started painting a bit with that stuff and I realized I didn't really like painting with oils. It took too long for it to dry and stuff like that. And I was a bit impatient and I wanted sort of more quicker results. So I started painting with acrylic. But I was definitely inspired by my dad. And then after that, Brett Whiteley was a huge inspiration. I used to go to his studio in Surrey Hills there and just I'd just go in town by myself. I'd just be in his studio all day just looking at all these bits and pieces and until they ushered me out the door, you know, when they closed. <laughs> Sorry, excuse my ignorance. Yeah. Didn't they turn the studio into a museum? 
Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, is it still there. It's still there. Curiosity? Yeah, yeah. Well, as is far as a- as far as I know, last time I was there was a couple of years back, and it was still there then. So I'm imagining it would be. His sister manages it, and I'm pretty sure she was pretty big on keeping it there. And I think it's it's probably part of it's probably almost a heritage listed place by now. Maybe. Yeah, definitely Brett. And then I guess in later years, it's been been different people. Barry McGee, I really love Barry McGee's stuff. He's an artist from I think San Francisco. Yeah, and a few other artists in his kind of group, which, you know, they got coined the Beautiful Losers kind of group of artists, I guess. Barry was included in that a little bit, I think. Wow, man. So from inception, so from those early days and those early influences, how, and this is a big question, how would you say that art journey has evolved to where you are now in life? It's evolved heaps. So it's been, I guess it's been nearly 30 years. I had my first art show in Newtown. I used to follow this band called Toe to Toe, this hardcore band. <laughs> you might have heard of them. I know, I know, yeah, I know who they are. <laughs> yeah. So Scotty, the singer, he had a shop in Newtown called Resist Records. And when Resist first opened, um, Justin, who was the bass player, he worked there and so did Scotty and a few of the other boys. And Scotty was having, he wanted to have an art show. He came more from like the hardcore and the skate kind of background. I guess I came more from surfing, but I, I guess it crossed over in a bit. I skated a lot actually because a couple of my friends, Jake Brown and David Evans. Uh, you know, I know, I know Evo and I know ja- and Jake oh, Brown. And when you, when you said you'd go skating in the city and I sort of seen your age, I thought, I bet you remember when Jake Brown was from Cronulla. Like, yeah. he's lived in the city forever now. He's lived there a long you know, time, hasn't he? Probably since his 30s, I think. Evo, David, Evo. Oh, yeah, sorry, this is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's um. So I remember Evo came down the alley one day where I grew up surfing, and he said, "Um, he goes, oh, I just got back from the city. We've been skating, and we're like, oh, the surf's been pumping. Evo, where you been? He's like, oh, skating's just as good as surfing. And we were like, oh, no, no, it's not. Anyway, so I started skating quite a lot with Evo. He was probably one of the best first skaters in Australia at that stage. But he started great skating street a fair bit too, and I kind of liked street a bit at the time. So I guess with Scott and going back to that sort of stuff, I guess I crossed over into his world a little bit because I used to always go and see those hardcore bands and had a little bit of a skating background. Yeah, so I was involved in that first art show and um, in 1992 in Newtown at Resist Records. Uh, so I'm just like amazing. I'm just hanging off your every word here. Can yeah, you- and I'm just remembering too as I'm talking about it that stage in my life I guess I was a teenager and I'd been doing some painting after I got my dad's stuff then I started with acrylics I had some painting stuff I was doing I didn't really have a style that I I didn't know I was just painting things and they weren't things from reality they were just kind of you know I did a few nudes of women not from any pictures just from my imagination and just kind of abstracty stuff and so when I did that show, I had some a couple of paintings. Uh, I did some collage work. I used to get this magazine called On the Street, this like music magazine. And every week I'd get it and I'd, I'd like change the cover. I'd like stick things on the cover, write things. And I, have, I still have the whole collection of those magazines in my collection of art stuff. And so I had a few covers of that in the show and then some photos. I like used to like taking photos in Hyde Park of just weird people and stuff like that. So from then to now, I guess when I moved up to Byron, which was to Mullumbimby, 
was the first place I moved to. I lived up behind Mullumbimby up on a mountain in this like timber and glass studio. And I had, I was just working a few days a week at the time at a surf school. I had a lot of time on my hands and I started painting again. So I hadn't painted for a little while at that stage. I just finished writing my book and that just got published and I hadn't had time to paint. And then yeah, in the end of 05, when I got that studio in Mullumbimby, I started painting again. And I just started splashing things around and, and I painted a lot. So this style started to emerge and I wasn't searching for it. It just happened because I was painting a lot. And then I noticed what I was painting a lot of was this similar themed thing, you know, these similar colors and I was painting clouds and I was painting birds and, and then I started painting trees and then I come up with this character called Waterbird and I was like, oh, he's pretty cool. I could probably live through him a bit in my paintings, which could be fun because I like I liked what I was painting, the landscape. So I was like, I want to jump in there. So I created this character called Waterbird and I started painting him. And I kept painting him up until about 2016. And I guess I'm still painting with a similar style now, but my paintings at the moment have turned to a bit more freestyle, I guess. And abstract's not the right word, but I guess a bit, they're sort of surreal in a way, but just placing different elements in different ways. So I guess they're evolving from the 10 years from 05 to kind of 2016, 17. It's just evolving from there. So similar subject matter, but just placed a bit differently on the canvas. So I guess it's changing as I'm changing. And, yeah, so it's come definitely a long way. Mm. If you don't mind me asking, like, how much are you driven by creating a sustainable financial lifestyle from your art? I've never had that in my equation with my art. I've just always kept that out of the equation. So, because I, I found out pretty early on, even in that sort of late 05 to 07 period when I was living up on the mountain, I worked out pretty early that because I started selling some art around that stage. I think the first painting I sold actually was from that collection was up in Noosa through a surf shop. And it was a decent amount of money. money and I was like, wow, if I could paint one of those, you know, and sell it every two weeks, I could live. But actually doing that, really thinking about it and getting in headspace and actually then I went, I'll try it. It actually just got stressful so quickly. Then I found myself looking at, well, what will work? And at the time I had my first art show in Japan, all the artists I was surrounded by were kind of, you know, there was Thomas Campbell and there was Alex Nost and there was like, Taylor Knox and Dustin Humphrey and Andy Davis and all these guys I'd heard about and seen, you know, and then I was in this art show with them and I was looking at their artwork and looking at mine and I was happy with mine. But as that evolved, I I sort of went back there every two or three years for shows and as that, I guess, collection of artists evolved, a lot of them dropped out and all these new artists started coming in and, and the work they were doing sort of started getting turned to surf art. And kind of I got dragged into that category a little bit, but I didn't really think I fitted into that category. So I got rid of the whole trying to, I guess I thought I could make a little bit of a, some money could contribute to my life and my family and that through my art, but not, I was never aiming for like, I'm going to really go for it and pump out prints and pump out canvases and get on that whole thing. Because what I was seeing was that the people that were actually making that work were we're doing that. They're either really prolific at creating and really good at it and usually been doing it a long time or they were creating what the 
I guess, public was demanding. So I saw the two different things and I wasn't really in either of those categories at the time and I'd want to be in the creating what the public was demanding category. So I sort of went, no, nah, not going that way. I want to follow. I guess it was a bit of a spiritual direction, I suppose. Yeah, I can't remember if I actually answered the question, Shan. You 100% answered the question because I guess I'm curious to see, you know, that first time you make a little bit of money from doing something you're passionate about, you know, I'm, I was curious to find out, did it pollute your creativity? And you, you sort of mentioned that. You said, hey, hang on, if I just did that once a fortnight, I could pay the rent and I could quit my day job. It must be quite challenging to resist. But then you sort of said it became really stressful, which I find very interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess it's stressful in, sorry, mate, I just got on to something. I think it's stressful in the way that my, the reason why I painted it and what I got from it would have to be put aside slightly. That was the stressful bit thinking that I'm not going to get the same thing out of it. And the bit that I like is creating it. Like the bit when I'm in a studio by myself and I'm researching stuff and I'm reading literature and I'm going out to the backyard and staring and I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. And then I'll go back in and I'll paint a little bit and I'll be like, oh, yeah, and then starts coming together, you know. That's quite an adventure, like my sort of relationship with my art. And I like that bit, you know. When it's finished, it's kind of over, but you're left with a painting, you know, and sometimes people want them because they want to experience something from it as well. So that kind of it's a pretty cool circle to, to be a part of. Yeah, you mentioned your your father was an artist, so obviously that's maybe in your DNA a little bit. If you don't mind, can we go right, right back to your childhood and you said that you grew up in Cronulla, is that correct? I grew up in a, a little town called Croydon Park in my, or Enfield even, in my really little, ten, little not teens, but like you know, one to ten years old or whatever. My uncle was a surfer, my mum's brother, and... When my mum used to go out on the weekends, she was a young mum, she used to drop me and my sister at her mum's. And I remember being there one Saturday morning in the hallway playing with my cars, my matchbox cars, and my uncle came walking through the door and he just looked like a surfer, man. He had like little short boardies on. He had this like blonde kind of bleached hair, this kind of short back and sides. And, you know, this was in the 70s. I'd already seen all these surfboards under my grandmother's house, all these logs, like proper logs with like timber fins and skegs and that sort of thing. But then he walked in, you know, and he had a block of wax in his hand. And he looked at me and he goes, James, smell this. And I smelled it. It was coconut and pineapple sex wax. And he'd just gotten back from Hawaii. Yeah. And I smelled it and I was like, wow, what's this? And he goes, this surfboard wax. This is what I put on my board. And I was like, what for? And he told me. And from that moment, I wanted to surf. And, you know, and a few years later, he took me for my first surf. After that first surf, I got up on the board. I was on this single fin surfboard that he lent me. And I, I stood up. And he didn't teach me like he said he was going to teach me. But when we got to the beach, he just went out the back and started surfing and just said, there's the board, there's the waves, go for it, you know. What beach? Avoca. Oh, really? He took me north to Avoca, yeah. That's so bizarre because I've actually been living up that way and surfing Avoca nearly every day. Yeah, right. (laughs) Great beach. How random. Yeah. It's a great beach. Yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah, so it didn't really teach me. just left me with the board. You plus the board plus waves. Go and try. 
and I tried and I remember getting washed around the white wash a bit, but then I remember the time when I got up and I stood and I rode the wave onto the sand, probably the white wash onto the sand. I just got that motion feeling and I was like, this feels so good and I'm doing it, you know, like I, I just did it. And I remember turning around looking out the back and he didn't see it. I just watched him glide across this wave out the back and I was yeah. like, wow, compared to what I did, Comparing with what he just did, I was like, that's where I'm going. I'm going there. Ever since then, I, you know, at that time, I started hassling my mum to move to the beach. Can we move to the beach? Can we move to Cronulla? Can we move to Cronulla? We kind of, eventually we had to because my mother had, she was in a relationship with a guy that was an alcoholic and he was abusive to her and he was violent. That happened, that lasted for, you know, quite a few years. But there came a time my mum said, okay, we're out. So we, in the middle of the night, we packed up our whole house and we jumped in a truck and we took off without him knowing or anyone else knowing. Me, my sister and my mum, we left. And eventually landed in Croydon Street at Cronulla and just up from Triple Bull shop there. And that's, yeah, that's where surfing, you know, I'd surfed a little bit before that, but when we landed there, I remember the the night my mum came home and said, hey, this is what we're doing, kids, and we're moving to Cronulla. I actually looked at her and started crying. I couldn't believe it. Out of happiness? Out of happiness, yeah. I was so happy that I was going to be able to just be right at the beach. And I I started surfing when I was 11, and I thought, wow, I'm going to actually start surfing more. I'll be able to get better. And there, yeah, Easy. we landed in Cronulla and I went to school at DRSL, started surfing heaps. So your, your parents separated many years before that? Yeah, they did, yeah. My dad and my mother separated when I was two in that little house and I remember the last time I saw my dad was, I, was in, I remember distinctly I was in my nappies. I remember the ironing board was opposite me. I remember looking up and just seeing this tall man and just remember... I still remember the feeling. It's bizarre, but that's that was when I was I was two, and I remember thinking, "Wow, that's that." I knew he was my dad, and I knew he was mine. You know what I mean? Like that's my father. I knew there was a connection stronger than anything else. And that's the last time I saw him. I did see him intermittently after that. You know, he used to come over occasionally. But yeah, they split up then. You know, and Mum had a couple of boyfriends here and there, and then she ended up with that one guy that was actually a, a beautiful man. But when he drank and got violent, he was terrible, you know, and the Jekyll and Hyde sort of scenario. And that was pretty hard for me and my sister to sort of deal with for all those years. But it ended it ended happily because we were out of there and we escaped and, you know, ended up where I wanted to be at that stage. It's funny how sometimes really beautiful things become born out of potentially dark situations. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think that depends on our perspective on things too and, and how – some people are able to rise up, I think, out of situations and, and like, start anew and others can't. And I've, I've been in both fields for sure where I just couldn't. And then other times when, you know, I've been able to do it quite quickly, especially if there's something, you know, on the other side that I can see that's a, something that I love and maybe passionate about. But I, when my dad died, that was a perfect example of not being able to get over that. That took me 14 years. you mind if I ask how old you were when he passed away? I was 18. Yeah, I was smack bang on 18. Have you guys really connected uh, again before that? Just starting to. We were just starting to connect and I was really looking forward to that because I just sort of started my carpentry apprenticeship and um, and I was getting decent at surfing. Yeah, I thought, wow, well, I'll be able to, you know, I felt like I was, I guess, maturing into a, a young man. 
a lot of ways I was immature as well, but I thought in one way I thought I'd be able to connect with him, you know. I was like, yeah, I feel like I could talk to Dad now a bit more. And I was looking forward to that, you know. So I think there was a lot of hope there. And then Dad died of cancer. So we kind of saw it potentially coming. But when it actually happens, you know, anyone that has had any lost anyone special or loved one in their life could relate, I'm sure. that It's gnarly when it actually happens because you're like, you realize that I guess and before that I hadn't had anything really taken away from me in my life, not in that way. But, yeah, that had a super huge shock to me. And at the time I was drinking a lot and not not a lot but a lot for an 18-year-old, I guess. We were a pretty rowdy bunch down at the alley where I grew up surfing and there was a lot of drugs around, pretty dirty drugs at that time too. And so I don't think that helped my kind of emotional and spiritual state after my dad passed away. And and that's probably why it took so long for me to kind of get over it in one way, I guess. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that, bro. I really appreciate it. And Mm. if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind just maybe delving a little bit into that process that you had to go through. I kind of feel like that would be really healing for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. You mentioned that it it took a long time. Mm. Um. Do you feel like there was a the, an end to that grief period? Yeah, there definitely was. Yeah, there was definitely. Well, it was a real. It was a huge roller coaster ride. It took fourteen years. Like I know the exact journey, and it was a fourteen year journey. And I probably from eighteen to twenty one, I was kind of super mixed up about it. Like about I guess the emotions that you feel that come from that and the grief and everything. Didn't really know how to handle them or what was going on and because at the time a a, a really close mate of mine there was about six to eight of us that this really tight group at the alley you know and we were like from the age of I don't know 13 to to then you know to the 18 we were this tight group of us and and we were like the bottom generation of the alley boys they used to call the group down there and I was at the bottom and there was like probably three generations above us it was a really unique period, actually, because where we used to hang around was at Joe's Milk Bar at the end of the Kingsway, the old milk bar there. You know that one? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, yeah. Everyone knows that place. I'm not from Canala, but I know it, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, the, the cool thing about that was it was such a meeting place of that group, you know, and like so we could be down there as 13, 14-year-olds and then there'd be the next group up, which were probably late teens to 20s, and then there was the like 30-plus guys, and then there was the real old guys. So there was this hierarchy of all these surfing generations that would, especially on the weekend, that could be all there. There could be like 20, 30, 40 crew there. So you felt like you're part of a, a surfing family. It was really, it was amazing to be part of. And that took me down a few good roads and a few bad roads, but <laughs> that's another story. But Just how that like extended family for you. Yeah, probably. Like in a way, I guess, like. I lived really close to the alley, so my mum and my sister were just up the road and I could see the ocean from my bedroom. I couldn't see the surf, but I could see the the ocean. Everyone used to leave, a lot of people used to leave their boards at my house because it was like so close to the beach. The alley would just run down the hill and we were there. But one of my good mates, his name was Wilbur, he died just after my dad died. A sudden death that one was, you know. We were all out one night. We all met down the alley the next morning like we always used to and swap all our stories and stuff that happened the night before. And we all got there, but Wilbur didn't turn up. And anyway, yeah, so he died really all of a sudden. So I had those two deaths in that really short period of time, you know, in that year. So it was kind of hard to understand all and 
probably by the time I was 21, I was probably pretty badly depressed, but didn't even know it because I was like drinking and like smoking a bit of weed. We were doing a bit of speed back then. Cocaine was around a bit, but we weren't into it. We were just kids with hardly any money, so we were just getting whatever dirty things we could get, which was which at the time was speed, which was a terrible drug. Um, drug. So yucky. But because I was doing that stuff, it was kind of masking what was happening. But but when I was straight, which is probably most of the time, you know, I was experiencing this really kind of confusing world. But anyway, I kept doing my life, doing my thing, and. Anyway, as as I started realizing what was happening and as the depression started developing and I started sort of realizing, wow, I'm actually in a super-duper bad way, I didn't tell anybody and I'd already had my own sort of spiritual practice at that stage from an early age, so I kind of had that to lean on. But no one knew what I was going through mentally ever until not long ago. I didn't tell anyone. So... I realized that when I was hung over, I'd be in a really sort of, you'd be on a downer. And when I was hung over, I'd get really depressed, like killer depressed, you know? Can relate yeah, to man. that. Yeah, oh, 100%. Mm. Yeah, keep going. Oh, I'll just finish that part of the story because it's kind of having that realization took a long time because then I'd be like, okay, I won't, I won't drink. I'll just go out with the boys and which is really hard when you're 21, 22, because you're still young and it's all about that, you know, and it still is now because I've seen it in my, my kids about drinking and all that sort of stuff. And I did, I did like it, you know, I love being drunk and tipsy. It was so much fun. But I realized, like, I could only have a certain amount because I didn't want to get hung over. And then I'd be like, this is fine. I can, I can drink a bit more again. So then I'd have a six-pack again or an eight or ten-pack or whatever, get hung over again, feel the depression stuff again, and then be like, shit, I can't do that. So that went on for years and then my depression slowly got worse, worse and worse until it really hit a stage probably I reckon around the mid-20s when I was like super, duper heavily depressed, like dark, dark stuff, like really crazy dark. You know, hearing voices, suicidal thoughts, the whole deal, you know, but I didn't tell it. No one still knew. No one knew. Mid-20s? Yeah, probably towards the mids, like 24-ish I reckon. I was about, yeah, around then. And then I got to a stage where I was that bad that I thought, look, I can't even drink. Like I I just cannot drink anymore. So I actually stopped drinking. It was the year that Oki won the world title. Oh, that late 90s. 99, he won the world title. 99, yeah, 99. Yeah, he was my favorite surfer, so I remember that (laughs) really specifically. But that's the year I stopped drinking and that was the answer, you know, like I was, I was still depressed, but that was one of the things that kind of slowed it down a bit, I guess, and wasn't a roller coaster as much. It was just like, you know, I was still heavily depressed and I was experiencing psychosis and different things like that as well, which is super heavy for, to experience. It's very hard to manage. Was the psychosis bad while you were drinking or did it get actually worse when you stopped drinking? It probably got worse, I guess, in a way because, you know, you're more aware of it because for me, you know, I was like balanced all the time, like not balanced in a great way, but like as in there's no ups or downs. It was just like this same thing, you know, the same mental and sort of emotional, spiritual state all the time. So when anything did happen, like the psychosis kind of in that way, I was super aware of it, you know. Man, thanks for sharing that. And you haven't drunk since 99? No, I, I have. Yeah, I have. Because I kind of, I in 2002, I came out of the depression. 
What? Do you feel it just lifted? What, what changed? Yeah, my life changed. I had a, I guess you call it a spiritual awakening, potentially call it that. I've heard those two words go together a lot. People have mentioned those. And I had an experience in one night, which is a story in itself, how that happened and what the details were, which was, I guess, it's a supernatural experience. I don't know what happened to me or or whatever, but, but it actually did. And the next morning when I woke up, like after it happened, it happened, you know, during the night and after it happened, this two hour thing that happened, I wrote it all down. I wrote seven pages cause I was writing a lot at the time I was writing my book. And so I wrote it all down on these full scat pages, which I still got what transpired during that two hours. And then I didn't really understand it, but I went back to sleep. When I woke up the next morning, I had my alarm set for six o'clock because at the time with the depression, the only thing, the only way I could escape it was surfing because I discovered this thing that I called the no mind state. And I was like, that's the only way I can escape it. So I was doing as much as I could around work and, and everything else. So I woke up the next morning anyway, after that sort of happening transpired and I just remember opening the blinds that day. I lived in Howie Avenue at the time, just up the Kingsway, Cronulla there. And I just looked out and I remember just looking at the sky and looking at the trees and just going, wow, like things are looking very different today, like after what happened the night before. Because I said a huge prayer the afternoon before, a huge prayer, because I have a prayer practice and I still do today and I had it since then and still goes on. And and it was about the depression and, and a few other things. And so when I woke up that morning and looked out the window and I was like, the sky looks really blue, trees are looking super green, and the birds are sounding gorgeous. I was like, this sounds so beautiful. Look at the world. And I remember going surfing that Crazy. day and just was, I was just like, what happened? Like things are different. Mm. Things are different. And so after 14 years of the depression, it stopped from there and I've never had it since. It changed overnight. Dude, I'm just like my jaw is hanging to the ground. I'm like, can I say, did God speak to you? Look, it's like I have my own stuff in that, in the God area, and God didn't talk to me, but like I had some physical things happen and I had some visions happen. I got visited by one of the big dogs in the spiritual world, and there's only a few of those. And um, like. You know, the big dogs like Krishna and Jesus and all those cats. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so one of those, one of those guys, JC, JC, JC turned up. Jace, and you're a carpenter as well, are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm a carpenter. JC was a carpenter. I know. Anyway. It's, I'm not uh, making keep going. No, no, that's fine. That's the, that's the best way to do things, I reckon. But anyway, yeah, so that was turned up. And, you know, that's why I put it down to a supernatural thing because, you know, I'd tried everything else before that. I'd tried therapy and everything, so many things, you know, and not, nothing nothing worked. But anyway, after that night, it, it all changed. So it was um, it was definitely a supernatural thing because it was a, the thing that happened was a spiritual kind of thing. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm like beyond inspired by that story, you know. I mean, I feel like we're in a world where you can numb out on anything, whether it be drugs or whether it be technology or consumerism, and we all suffer in various ways. And I feel like when I'm in the worst states of despair, you know, they often say that you have nowhere else to reach out to, but maybe your version of God or a higher power or a spirit of the universe 
And I don't know, to hear you say that and then it actually changed the course of your life and you did it, you did it that way legitimately. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, and I think people sometimes can give up before the miracle happens. If you have ever heard that saying, I haven't, but I, I do understand what you're saying and I believe it for sure. So you, would you say that you, you, you had this prayer practice going for a long time prior to that experience? Yeah. Yeah. A super duper long time. Cause that, that's kind of, that's all I had. <laughs> Amazing. And so then it, it kind of like manifested, bro. Yeah, it happened, man. It just totally unexpectedly, it happened. Yeah. Just, um, transpired. I don't know how the timing works or how any of that stuff works. I, I do have my philosophies and theories on how it works, which I think is part us and part your version of God or whatever. I, I sort of understand everyone's got different versions of that. There's probably not many, but, and I think it's, it's us stepping into something and something stepping into us. And, you know, that's my understanding and that's just my experience. And then I think you got to believe as well, which is sometimes very hard to do when you've been trying something for so long. Like you surrendered as well. Like I don't remember actually surrendering. I just remember I was inspired to pray a lot that night before because I'd been. We went down and checked the surf that afternoon. It was super stormy, and you know we were standing at the top of the wall, looking down towards the alley at Cronulla there, and this huge rainbow appeared on the water, and it, and it started moving towards us at the wall there, and I was like, "Look at this! The rainbow is actually coming towards us." And that night, I was just thinking about that, and I was like, "Well, that was a pretty special afternoon. I'm going to go hard on the press after night and see what's up with that." see where it goes. So I don't remember surrendering to it, but I just, cause I had that practice for a long time. I, I really did believe in, you know, the, the particular things that I believe in. And, and um, I believe that it could still happen for me, you know, even though it had been so long, I was like, nah, it still could happen because what else have I got? I've, all I've got is what I've got every day, which is the journey I knew about, which was gnarly. You know, I had my moments during the days and stuff like that weird laugh and stuff like that and I think the very bottom for me was like even though I was surfing every day which was like actually on the wave you know in the no mind state it was a total escape from reality I do remember one day between waves sitting out the back looking at the horizon crying because I was like how can I feel so bad between waves like the only places when I'm on the wave give me another wave like where's another wave quick like I want anything that little one the big one whatever so that's I mean that's addiction right there yeah man oh it is <laughs> you know in terms of that's a healthier form of it but that's still yeah I hear you using surfing as a way to to escape true I'm out yeah that's a good one yeah you were really feeling that way in between waves yeah it happened a, yeah it did yeah does it creep back in the depression or no not anymore because once that happened that night and then the next day like i remember you know i quickly the next morning i i got back from the surf i got a story for you you know just let me get to the end of it though and i told him the whole story and you know we were all crying by the end of it and just like wide mouth just going what the hell and i was just i was the same i was like what the hell i don't know but i'll try and understand it over time it was a super bizarre period but that i guess after that like i was totally it was totally gone like my life changed but i guess i've had periods where I thought it would come back. You know, I had some anxieties a couple of times where I couldn't really believe that it was gone. I say your mind can, you know, your mind can 
it's a real tricky thing, the mind, you know, it's, it's different to the heart and the soul, that's for sure. So you kind of, there's, there's a time and place for your mind and time and place for the heart. And then the best place is probably the connection of the two. Dude, that's, that's epic. That's a beautiful thing to say. What prompted the move up from Cronulla to Byron Bay area? Well, look, when I was writing, I wrote a book called Blue Yonder. And when I was writing that book, I, I had ideas of who I wanted to write it about it and put in the book because I'd had probably five or six years prior to that. This was like, I started writing the book in 2001. So prior to that, I'd been writing for some surfing magazines and some snowboarding magazines and taking photos for some of those magazines as well. It was really cool, especially at the start. The mid-90s to late 90s was a pretty cool time to be writing for surfing magazines because they liked the articles I was writing about. I actually felt a connection to the articles and the people I was writing about, stuff like that. I guess the more I got into it and the more I kind of got commissioned to write things, the less I wanted to write about some of the things I was being commissioned to write about. And so I got a little bit jaded by that because I'm always about purpose and things I love and stuff like that so being told to write about this guy over here that does this in his surfing life and then doing that and then not really being connected to it kind of got it's just sort of wore old on me and I just didn't really dig it anymore so I um you know I wrote this really long piece for this particular magazine and they said no we're not going to run that and I put so much into it and so I remember just going right stuff it (laughs) I'm going to write a book I'm going to write my own book and (laughs) How naive and was I? I thought, oh, look, I'm going to do it. And I contacted a guy called Derek Hind, a surfer that you might have heard of. Yes. Derek, yeah, a lot of people probably know Derek. He's the next pro surfer, journalist, and, you know, friction-free surfer. And Derek had been down to Cronulla in the late 80s, and there was a group of about six of us surfers that Paul Sargent, the photographer, said, you know, you guys are going to be pretty good surfers, we think, and so we're going to get Derek Hine down here to coach you. So Derek Hine came down to the alley. He pulled up there one day in a Porsche <laughs> and we were like, who's this guy? And out gets Derek and we're like, wow, it's Derek Hine, man. Derek's here. And it's Paul Sargent's like, well, Derek's going to coach you guys because he's going to show you guys how to compete and get better at this and be the best surfer you can be. And so from that point on, we started training with Derek Hind and took us down the coast and did some different drills and just unloaded a whole lot of knowledge onto us as well, which was super cool at that, you know, age we'll probably, I don't know, 16 or 17, 18, around that period. And while we're doing that, we used to like, Sarge had an ambulance, this old ambulance, and he used to pile us into the ambulance, six of us, with our boards and then he'd grab either Oki or Gary Green or Richard Marsh and one of those guys would come with us. They'd be like our kind of team coach for the day and we'd go to different beaches and surf against, you know, the Maruba guys or the Narrabeen guys and have like little heats with them and stuff like that, which was super fun. But that's when I met Derek anyway around that stage and so when I sort of said I'm going to write a book, I thought, right, because I used to follow Derek's writing a lot because I loved his alternative thinking and his, like, boldness and his straightforward writing. It was just and, – and really intellectual as well. I thought, Derek's my man. I'm going to tell him what I want to do and see what he thinks. So I wrote him an email and he got back to me and he said, come over and see me at Newport. Meet me at the Newport Plus 
car park, Newport Peak car park, and let's chat. So I jumped in my Land Rover at the time and drove over the bridge to Newport. And um, there was Derek in the car park waiting by the shower for me, staring out the ocean. And I pulled up and went and stood beside him. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to write a book. I don't want to write for any of these magazines anymore. They're, they're producing what I consider crap content on, on the writing side anyway. And I said, I've got my own ideas, what I want to write about and who I want to write about. And um, I said, I'd love to include you in the book. And also I'd love to include George Greeno and a whole other list of crew that I was interested in. And, um, you know, Derek shared a few things with me as well about that. You know, the first thing he said to me is, have you got a publisher? I said, no, no, I haven't got a publisher. And he goes, how are you going to do it? I said, I'm just going to do it. I said I was really naive and didn't really understand the world of publishing or I did a little bit I guess through the magazines but not like a book a book's a different story and costs money and you got to distribute it and stuff like that so Derek sort of yeah shared some really interesting stories with me that are in the book but he said look I want you to meet a friend of mine his name's Andrew Kidman he lives just around the corner so we went around to Andrew's house that day and and I met Andrew and a journalist from California called Steve Barilotti he was I think he might have been the editor for the for Surfer magazine at that time potentially yeah so we spent the day there and and I spent you know subsequent other days there with those guys and that sort of became the start of the book content you know because I was took photos and yeah interviewed a few of those guys Joe Curran was there at the time as well amazing yeah so anyway after that part of the book's called Ocean Street because that's where Andrew lived and sort of after that period which was quite a few months I I wanted to I get in touch with George Greeno. And so the only way I could get in touch with George was um, via a guy called Dick Hool, a filmmaker who worked with Jack McCoy. And Dick said, I can't give you his phone number, but here's his address, write him a letter. So I wrote George a letter and about six weeks later, I got a letter back from George Greeno. And I was like, wow. geez, he wrote me a letter. I can't believe it. And I remember opening the letter and it was I've still got it. And I was going to say. Yeah, I've got it, mate. Yeah, it's a classic. It was really hard to read. But he sent me some photos as well as some photos of some dolphins he'd taken. Yeah, he said, look, come up and he said, I live on this particular road. He told me the name of the road, but he didn't tell me his address. He just said, I'm on this road. See if you can find it. And I was like, that's all he's given me. It's just the road. <laughs> I was like, shit, this is going to be interesting. But you can find me. So funny. Yeah, at the time I'd always I'd been thinking of moving north and you know, I'd been trying to save some money to move north and just had the idea that that'd be a good place to, to you know, to raise a family and stuff like that. And so I went up and yeah, I went up to try to find George and I ended up finding him. And uh, after a really interesting day driving along a beach and through a forest, <laughs> I found his house, which is which is actually a, he lives in a, a pyramid shaped house. Okay. Yeah, he lives in a pyramid in in a beautiful kind of um, you know nature reserve. So yeah, and we became friends in you know that early two thousand and two. He gave me his time and we talked about a lot of interesting things. And over the next few months, I went up there sort of three times to visit him and, and sort of, you know, interview him. And, you know, we hung out and went fishing and different things like that. And I got to see a lot of that area through those visits. 
And that kind of really sort of showed me how beautiful the area was and, and how abundant it was in nature and waves. And, and I met some other people there, you know, that were kind of really interesting people, artists and surfers and musicians and, and some alternative thinkers. I just loved how eclectic the crowd was up there, you know, at that time, the early 2000s, so 20 years ago, I guess. More inspiring creatively? Yeah, I think... There was such a diverse crew of people that I met up there, you know, and George is very diverse, you know. So, yeah, I guess is the top of that, I guess, from his lifestyle and what he's, what the lifestyle he's led and the things he was into and, and his views on things. Yeah, definitely inspiring creatively to be around, I guess, a community of people that are open to all sorts of ideas in all sorts of ways. It makes you, in Cronulla, I don't think that, a lot of my ideas or things were getting heard in the same way they're getting heard up there, for instance, you know. Gotcha. Unless you're with the right, you know, you find the right people. I had some close friends in Cronulla that definitely I could share a lot of things with and get some inspiration from, but it just seemed a bit more abundant in that way up there. So that really sort of sealed the deal that, yep, we'll definitely, you know, move up there. And so I put a time on it, which was like, okay, when the book's finished, you know, and it gets, because I ended up getting the publisher in the end with the book. It wasn't planned, but it just ended up happening, which is a cool little story. Yeah. And when the book, once the book was published, we sort of packed the truck up and we went north. When you were writing the book and, and delving into that part of your life, like, how are you funding that time in your life? Like, how are you, you know, able to live day to day? Were you also working another job or? Yeah, yeah. Surviving creatively or what? Yeah, no, I was working another job, yeah. It was really interesting, I think, because that's where I started really understanding what how passion drives a person because I did understand in a way, I guess, from being a surfer, how passion drives you because what drives a surfer to get up at, you know, 5.30 a.m. when it's freezing cold and step into a wet wetsuit and go down to the beach that's passion and you know and so I did understand in a way but I never I didn't put that label on it at the time but when I started writing my book you know I got up probably for three years I guess I got up at I used to get up at four o'clock in the morning and I'd write from four to seven because by that stage I had two young boys Colby and Blake my first two boys and, you know, they would get up about seven. So I was like, okay, if I get up at 3.34, it'll give me three hours to just write, you know, whatever trip I'd just been on or whatever interview I need to transcribe from the little tape recorders that you had at that time. You had to, you know, transcribe word by word. Amazing. And that was after that I understood that that was passion, you know, that like what made me do it because I was also working at a surf shop and I also, I had my carpentry trade. So I sort of, if little things popped up on the side with that, I'd do a little bit of carpentry and then, you know, there's still like, I guess the, the, the aftermath of like the writing for magazines and stuff was still around a bit. So I got the occasional little thing there and then, I had a surfboard sponsor at the t- a surfing sponsor at the time with, with a brand called Volcom, and they sort of used to get me to do like yeah, they used to get me to do like window displays around Sydney with um another surfer called Ozzy Wright at the time. He was doing a couple, and I was doing a couple, and we did one or two together. And so when you say like window installations, like so art installations, but also promoting Volcom, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like. Yeah. You know, some of them. 
it was a fun thing to do because it was creative and it gave me a little bit of income and they were a really good crew to do it for because I was just like, hey, go and like here's a big window, like it's affection, Warrywood or Manly or wherever it was or, you know, Cronulla or wherever or in the city, go and make it look Volcom. So I'd, you know, have some paintings that I'd done and I used to paint televisions and mannequins and all sorts of weird and wonderful things and then go and make the window look like that brand, you know, like Falcom, which which I kind of understood from the inside out because I'd been with them for a long time. I always loved them and it just worked. That was the thing that was once or twice a month. And so, yeah, all those little bits and pieces sort of supported me and my family and then the writing the book thing happened early mornings and then the trips away happened just wherever I could fit them in between everything else really. And, and once again, I think I'll get back to that. It was driven probably by the passion to do it. Passion. Hey, yeah, it's such a gift to have a passion. Isn't it? It really is. I was talking about it in my last podcast and yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how I would have got this far in life without having passion or passion. I've got passions. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of my problem. I've got too many things I'm passionate about, but yeah, right. it was like that analogy you used of like what gets someone out of bed at 5.30 a.m. and putting on a wet wetsuit. I mean, that idea is transferable to other people who have passions. Like, you know, what gets a boxer out of bed to, you know, to train or. See, I wouldn't know. Like how it's hard to relate to, isn't it? Because I couldn't relate to that. No. You know, but. But it's passion, isn't it? Their their own version of it, I guess, and what yeah, versions of it, yeah, you know, and what drives what's driving that passion, I guess, is probably the next level, I suppose. Well, that's what I get curious about. I mean, for me, it's my passions are therapy. I mean, if I'm honest, this podcast is a passion for me, but it's it's a form of therapy, man. If I'm honest, mm. uh, it brings me so much joy in my heart. It's a gift. Yeah. And surfing's done the same for me. Skate, I was a skateboarder first. Well, yeah, I always, but I, I love, I love, sur- I've, I've surfed for many years. But I'm always obvious. I'm always a skateboarder at heart, you know. And yeah, yeah, it's the same thing, you know. Like when I was younger, like what forced me to throw myself down that set of stairs over and over and over, you know? Yeah, man, that's hard. It's hardcore. Similar concepts, right? For sure, yeah, similar concept across different sort of things, you know, different outlets and experiences. How was the idea for the Byron Bay Surf Festival conceived? Because the period of writing my book was it was a long period. It was five years. So yeah. being immersed in that uh, one project for five years is it's a long time and it's a, and it's a beautiful time to have a project and, and be a part of it and be adding to it the whole time, you know, and – I guess it's an even, I didn't know where it was going to go when I started. I just knew I wanted to do it. So that's kind of like part of me is with ideas is naivety and, and I'm a risk taker also. And so I, I take risks because I'm naive in, in certain ways, depending what it is like, you know, I wouldn't do that with my kids or something like that. But for me personally, you know, like I'll take a risk because because for me as a risk taker, I don't see the outcome as being, I don't see the bad part of the outcome. I see the outcome as being like the best part of it. So I take that risk and because I think it's going to be good. The five-year project and when it finished, I was, I guess I was a bit like, oh, damn, it's it's done, you know. It's like all those, like 
that creative output of the writing and the photography and designing the book and it was just so beautiful to, to do it and I just enjoyed it so much and, and it was also amazing to see it as a book in the end it was actually it was a product on the table that you could flick through and be like wow look at that story from the beginning to the end and everyone's stories that are inside it so I guess when I finished amazing it's sorry to cut you off there but oh, it's all right. like You've left a le- – it's a legacy, you know. And even the, the pieces of art you create, you know, you're leaving all these things in the world, like legacy items. Mm. It's uh, Not a lot of people can say that they leave those sort of legacies in the world. Yeah. I think it's so special. It is, you know. It's um, Everyone leaves different types of legacy, legacies, I guess, different ways. And I think I'm definitely not an extrovert. I think as an introvert, I don't – always leave legacies behind in conversations, especially in groups. One-on-one I'm really good at, but I guess making things and stuff like that I just really enjoy and it's just I guess a byproduct of my character is like making things and expressing myself onto sort of physical things that then I can just put there and there aside and then I'll do another one and another one and whatever. But, yeah, back to the, the surf festival, I I guess when the book finished and, you know, that, that's what I was trying to get at, uh, there was a bit of a hole, you know. I was like, okay, I was surfing a lot and, and I'd started painting a lot. I was really enjoying that. You know, I started doing some surf coaching in Byron Bay because it was one of the only ways I could sort of work out to find a consistent income to support my family at the time. So I was fixing a surfboard one day on a farm at a place called Skinner Shoot in Byron Bay. And um, a friend that also worked in the surf school, we had, I guess, a little mini surf festival, like about three or four months prior, which was in 2000, early 2010. We sort of we went to the community centre in Byron and I put up my art and I took my short film and my book there. And then my friend, she brought this, this surf film there called it was actually called Deer and Yonder, which was interesting because it had the name Yonder in it. That film was made by um, the artist Thomas Campbell's wife, Tiffany Campbell, and it was a yeah, it was a it's a really nice film. It's a I think it's I think it's probably from memory all female surfing that she made from memory, and so. We showed the film and, you know, had a friend of ours play some music and had the art there and, you know, I sold a couple of bits and pieces of things and photos and my book and stuff like that. So that kind of, I guess, we saw that as a really fun thing to do and a lot of people came and people enjoyed it and we'd been saying, well, that was pretty cool. Like I wonder if, I don't know. At the time, I'd also been going to Japan, participating in this other surf festival there called the Green Room Festival where I was trying my art and, a few other things like that and so I put that together with the little one we'd done and I was like this looks like a pretty cool thing that could happen and then my friend Vanessa said why don't we try and do a festival here in Byron and I said I reckon that's a pretty good idea let me bring a few of my friends that are surfers and artists and see if they'd be interested so yeah I just rung a couple of friends and said hey if we did this do you want to do this with us and a few people said yeah and and I contacted a few of my American Californian buddies and other local buddies and they said yeah it sounds cool you know, this is me being naive again, not knowing that, okay, there's a there's a crap load of admin involved in something like this, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> it sure is. So we, what know, year was that? That was 2010 when we sort of, you know, had the conversation and then, you know, I said, why don't you come to my house and let's like, I've written some stuff down. 
and let's chat about it, you know. So two friends came over, Vanessa and Tracy, two girlfriends that I worked with and put the ideas down and we just said, I said, well, I'll do this bit and why don't you do that bit and you do that bit and we'll see what happens. So we, I started reading some surfers and artists again, emails or whatever. And then it just started happening and it was like, okay, this is going to happen and got a couple of little sponsors and then we had the first festival in 2011 October 2011 was the first festival and it was surfing and art and music and filmmaking yeah it was just like a because I was always into you know surf culture and that was you know sort of you know my book was about surf culture and and I said let's make this festival about surf culture and not not make a surfing competition you know make it about It's funny. I I kind of feel like I'm surprised no one had done it before that in Byron Bay. I know. It seemed like. It was like an obvious fear, right? It did. You know, it felt like it anyway. It felt like it would be welcomed and accepted. And I think there was a lot of, since then and probably around that time, a lot of festivals were starting to get done in Byron. Probably not then, probably a little bit after then. Splendor was already there and Blues, but a whole bunch of stuff's popped up since then. You know, there's festivals all the time i mean not now but up to a year and a half ago the show was so yeah that's when it started so do you, do you are you like you know compared to the original vision that you had for it how are you happy with where it's sort of at at the moment i mean obviously with covid and all that it's probably not running but i don't know like are you happy with how it's grown or evolved yeah yeah i, I am because it's um you know the vision from the start was like for example when we wanted to include surfing in it like actually surfing but not a competition and and everyone was like well how's that going to work and you know i went home one night and i was like oh maybe it could work like this I said, how about we just do like surf sessions where we have different categories of surfboards. Like, you know, you have a longboard, a fish, a free fiction. Dude, dude, it sounds like when I was in Bali, I surfed in a comp there that Ty Graham puts on. I mean, he has the single fin classic at Ulu's. Yeah. But he does the, uh, we have a 20 surf comp. Yeah. Um, at old man's in Changu. And, uh, same thing. It's like, yes, there's a comp format, but it's super loose. And, you know, you're not getting points for big turns and stuff. You're getting points for having fun and creativity on the wave and things like that. So Yeah, that sounds like it, same man. That's... Was that the same vibe you were thinking or going? Yeah, that's the vibe I was thinking because I was thinking, okay, no contest but still surfing and, you know, nothing to win in the end. But what I did suggest was I suggested that we, we send 10 or 15 people out to ride, you know, either a longboard, a fish, a finless, uh, you know, then there was the mermaids, which was all the girls. And then there was sort of eight different categories and there still is today. But then what I said was like, okay, like to bring that full circle, like each surf session, why don't we get the surfers to come in? And then they come back to the tent where the microphone stuff is. And we have all the surfers names on a list that were in that category. And they put a tick next to the surfer that was having the most fun and showed the most creative flair in that session. So it was like a peer vote. And I thought that could be quite a good way to bring that full circle each session. And cause you know, people are driven by competition, but we didn't want to make it like that. So we said, let's do that and try it. And then we tried it and it kind of worked. It was pretty rough. You know, some people came and voted, some didn't and some didn't care. But at the end of the day, you know, on the Sunday when the whole festival ends, we had bunches of bags of goodies to give to, like, 
the girl that won. We didn't call it winning. We haven't called it winning the session. We've called it like, I, I don't know, awarded. The award in that session goes to, you know, this girl or this guy or this grommet or whatever. So that was how the surfing part happened. And that's been a really, I guess, what do you call it, like, I don't know, foothold of the of the whole festival each year, like the Sunday when we go to the beach and, you know, we just have a big surfing day and that, that finishes the festival with everyone at the beach. And, and we also had this, you know, the very last of the events, always the party wave where everyone goes out and, you know, catches the one wave to the beach and the first person to run at the beach and grab the bottle of beer with the cash in it. They, they just they just get a whole handful of money and it's a great load of fun. Sounds epic. So, yeah, it's, it's been good. So the vision, it's been the same. There's been, you know, some temptations along the way. I've had a couple of big surf companies kind of offer lots of money at some stages. and Really? Yeah. Yeah, there's been a couple, man. Have you denied them? Yeah, yeah, denied them. Why? Because the money didn't equal the the outcome of what the festival could then potentially become or be and represent. So what it represented was a surf culture that I believed in and was a part of that wasn't about the corporatization of surfing and the winning of surfing. It was about being involved in surfing and the lifestyle. And I guess the I guess the creativity that sort of can stem from that and and just what surfing gives you, you know, as a human, it gives us a huge thing as, as human beings, you know, and, and pursuing the lifestyle gives you so much, you know, going to the beach every day to check the surf. I don't have cameras in my life. I never check surf cameras because I tell everyone that they steal your lifestyle. <laughs> That's what I kind of preach at the beach. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny that everyone laughs at me, but I, I it takes me to the beach, you know, because that's how I check it. But, yeah, no, that's, that's held pretty closely to, like, the initial vision and, you know, turning down those dollars is, you know, it's hard because then you're like, oh, can we actually do the event then, you know, because the event needs money and, you know, the, the right people have come along in the end and, you know, you either have, have to have a really small one that year because there's not enough money or, you know, if the right people come along and you have a little bit more money, you say, oh, let's add a day on now and we'll do this thing and that thing and, I was like, I, I never thought I'd sort of, you know, it grew pretty big. Like it peaked probably in 2014 to 2017, 18, really hugely to where we had markets on the beach and it was five days and, you know, there was all sorts of big names involved. But yeah, the vision's still there, man. It's, um, it's a tricky one in a corporate environment, I guess, in, in a commercial environment to keep on track, but it's a worthy one. That's for sure. Yeah. I can imagine the politics, like anything, that probably grow out of these things. But I, I just really love that you refused or the temptation of, you know, corporate money. A lot of people wouldn't be able to do that, you know. I think it'd be very, very hard to deny, you know. Oh, for sure. Everyone needs money, you know. Yeah, man. Listen, man, like, <laughs> it's been epic, dude. Like, you know, with these podcasts, I... It's sort of, I often go into them with a preconceived notion of how I think they're going to turn out. And whenever I do that, they always turn out completely different to what I thought. And I know you talked a lot about surfing, but which is quite on what I expected, but I just love like your honesty and raw openness about, you know, some of your journey in your younger years, you know, and how you got to where you are now. 
I guess my next question is like, what's next for you at this stage and at this point in your life? Where do you see yourself beyond? I have a lot of focus on my family, like my sons and my wife, and that's like super duper at the very top for me. But I also have really strong kind of, I surf like all the time, like I'm just surf all the time. And, but I do it around all my other things. Like sometimes I just surf for 20 minutes and sometimes I surf for two hours, but I always do it because I always, I'm always trying to get better at things. Like, you know, even, I don't know, I just feel like I can, but maybe I'm delusional. I'm not sure, but, (laughs) but I just love the feeling of it. And I love, I've got lots of, you know, different surfboards that I ride and, you know, I ride mainly my, my shortboard quad fin, but also ride my single fin a lot. And I ride my 9.3 log a lot as well. But so, you know, more surfing and, and just like this is outside of my family focus. And then I'm really focused on my art at this point. And um, at the moment I'm sort of pulling together probably about 25 pieces because I want to have a solo show probably next year early. So, yeah, I'm just really focusing on my art and really enjoying that and the surfing and the family and they're right at the top of everything for me and just kind of continuing. Not not striving for more. For more what? (laughs) Exactly. You're not striving for more things? Um, Like material things or? Yeah, like, you know, maybe setting yourself up for the future financially or you're not striving for a bigger house or things like that. No, definitely. I mean, you know, like we we live in a really beautiful place. Like, you know, we live at just north of Byron and we've got a river just outside and the beach is really close and, you know, the mountains are behind us. Like it's it's kind of as good as it gets as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we don't want anything bigger or better or, you know, I like beauty. Like I'd love to make it, you know, more beautiful, like with just some, you know, more trees and more plants and, you know, some food in in the garden because we've been pretty crap at growing our own food, but we're trying. But, yeah, I don't want – I don't want – the only things I want more of is like I just want more love and more surfboards and just I want to produce more art. <laughs> yes. You know, like there are only more things I want, those more things, you know, like I don't – I never buy anything. I seriously don't buy. Except surfboards. I just buy surfboards, clothes from the op shop. I think that's it. Oh, and books, art books. That's kind of all I, oh, yeah, that's about all I buy really. And Do you feel like your surfing's progressing at your age still? Out of curiosity. No, not every day. I feel like some things get better with my surfing, like some turns get better. You know, I'm not sure with my surfing, I'm not trying to, I guess, progress it in like a high performance way, but I'm, I definitely love the involvement of it. And I love evolving my surfing in different ways. And I've been really enjoying, I've got a seven to single fin pintail that I've had a few sessions on and I was lucky I had someone there that they, they sort of filmed a little bit. They, it was their board I was riding and they wanted to film it a little bit. So I got to see that film afterwards and some still stills from the film. And I just love where that surfboard board took me on some of the waves, some of the positionings and, you know, the lines were just so different from my shortboard quad that, you know, I thought, wow, there's a long way I could go on that board to like learn about it, put myself in different positions on the wave and evolve. That's a whole thing that could go for like 
10 years that that on that board you know it's a single fin yeah but it's one that i it just worked it just works for me it's it's a beak nose with down rails wide point forward it's kind of you know the shaper told me that it came off a druin template oh sorry not a no no, Derek hines said the tail came off a druin template but the shaper said that the template came from um, a brewer board a dick brewer board yeah it's a brewer yeah a brewer template but uh so yeah i'm not sort of aiming for high performance surfing but evolving my surfing i guess and simplifying it a bit more minimalism you know some days i have those bursts where i sort of i feel like i'm like wow i'm still surfing the same as i did when i was 20 but i honestly think the best surfing i've done was not when i was 20 it's been like in the later years like the 30 to 40 years i think in there and i feel like i've just had a yoga practice for a long time and i think that's really helped my body sort of my body be able to connect with what my mind thinks i can do <laughs> sometimes my body's able to follow that line because it just still feels it feels really good actually in my body i've got no complaints amazing isn't that inspiring like i you know when i see a 60 or 70 year old man or woman surfing at a good level and they're fit and strong like i get so inspired by them like and that's my whole new motivation you know now that i'm in my 40s is i just want to be doing this for as long as i can you know i want to be surfing when i'm 80 and i feel like the things that you put in place now like such as what you're saying with yoga you know you maybe you're starting to reap the benefits of all that hard work now you know and 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 you'll continue to reap the benefits in those later years i think that's when they pay off in my opinion but i also feel like you become more refined in in your surf practice and you know you become better at picking the right sections and 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 waves and and scenarios it's just an observation but i think i'm enjoying it more now than i ever have yeah and but also what i'm enjoying is like i love how you said that you don't check surf cams you know because i just feel like Actual the act of catch, in my opinion, again, is the act of catching a wave for me now is a small part of surfing. The other major components for me is just the fact of going and standing there and looking at the ocean, feeling the wind direction, uh, having a look at what the tide's actually doing or how the banks are shaping up, you know, and then the whole act of paddling out, being in the sun, getting the sun on your skin and all that. And then catching waves is you know, probably only really like one eighth of the whole act in my opinion. So Yeah, yeah, no, I'm hearing you. It's just a cool place to be. The beach is a cool place to be. Yeah, when you've got a monkey mind when you've got a monkey minds like myself too, and and uh, I mean from what I'm sort of saying, I mean it's just been a gift. Like, you know, it's no said it is required. Yeah. Do you surf how often do you surf? I mean at the I'm at the moment you know, I mean, as much as I can. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, that's it. You know, when there's a swell on, I mean, I'm out there every day. Like we had this great run of swell like this winter. I don't, I mean, you probably, you, you guys would have got it as well. In the last couple of weeks, I was, you know, surfing five days a week, sort of thing. But then, you know, like a period, then the swells, swell sort of, there's no swell, and then you know, I might not surf for two weeks. So yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I'm not like you. I don't have a, d- a diverse range of craft. You know, I'm, I mean, I ride twin fins a lot, but. You know, I really need to – I want to get some mid-lengths and I want to get some logs, you know, um, but I don't. I'm still in that mindset of like twinnies, thrusters. Well, it depends what waves you've got to ride, what waves 
if the waves are allowed to rise up here, you've got those little, you know, you've got the pass and what he goes and these different yeah. waves that allow you to ride those boards as well. So, you know, it's good to have them on the roof because it's like you can surf pretty much every day because if it's, you know, north, you surf on the other side. If it's south, you surf on that side. If it's one foot, you surf the pass on your log. And so it is, it's a beautiful place to be a surfer. That's for sure. Yeah. I do miss the slabs at Cronulla though. I really do. Would you get amongst places like some of the outer reefs and stuff at Cronulla? Like, I don't want to say, I don't like to say their names, but you know, no, I won't either. Yeah, pretty famous slab, you know, out there. I've never surfed out there, the one you're talking about. Uh, when when I was younger, we would go out there, but we just went out there and we got really stoned and just watched it. And we'd only heard one guy had ever surfed there. Wow. Yeah, one guy. Back. Yeah, it's going back. And he was before our time. Like, he was older than us. But we'd heard one guy surf there and we heard rumours that Oki had surfed it. We could probably ask Oki these days if that was true and we would know. But we'd heard this one guy. I can't remember his name, but I'd seen him. He was super rough looking. And he had he used to wear stubbies and and a flano and just, you know, he was probably at the bottom bar at Northies and we'd heard he'd surfed it, you know, but I'd never surfed there, but I used to surf like those other reefs with a couple of, you know, a guy called Jeremy Harbour. No, out towards the other end of the beach, like right around the other side to the north end there. Yeah, Yeah, we used to sort of go out there quite a lot to all of those reefs that sort of went go out into the ocean there. So that was my favourites, yeah. But so I miss those, yeah. Yeah, you don't get that sort of stuff up here you don't get sort of slabs and heavy waves and you get lots of waves that's for sure you do get a lot of waves i mean you do get your days when it's big and you know heavy and but yeah not as not like granola it's a bit different Nah, man well listen i i could talk i could talk about this kind of stuff all day but um i ask all guests to come to the podcast with a cause that they want to support or advocate for so they do you have a do you have something for us today um i have i've got like a little i guess outreach called wings that i started in i think 2001 it's like a it's for youth and uh every time i sell a painting i put 10 percent of the proceeds into that bank account and that money sort of supports kids in the direction of surfing and art so i've sort of taken you know i used to sort of do a bit of work with byron high school up here taking kids on surf camps and so if a kid, for example, couldn't go on the surf camp because he couldn't afford it, well, then Wing would pay for that kid and he got to go on the surf camp, you know. And, and then with the Byron Bay Surf Festival, if a kid would win the kid's, you know, art contest, well, then I'd buy a whole bunch of paints and me and that kid would go and paint a wall, one of the cafes in Byron Bay or something. So the money's always gone to that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm really interested in supporting the youth. I haven't used any of that money for a while, but it's still there getting – it's still there sort of accumulating. So if anyone's got any good ideas, send me a... Yeah, amazing. So how can how can people connect in that way with uh, Wings? You know, it's for kids and it's in the in the way of surfing and arcs. I believe they, they're really good lifestyles to um, pursue and, and, you know, they, they give back to you a lot. So if anyone's got any ideas that they want to do something, you know, in that way for kids, I'd by all means love to hear them. And Like via your Instagram or Facebook or website? A DM via Instagram is the best, quickest one for me at James C. McMillan. Yeah, and, I, you know, if there's any ideas, I'd love to hear them. I mean, I've got my own, but it's it's good to hear fresh ideas as well. And, you know, everyone's got good ideas. If they don't have a little think about it, I'm sure. Amazing. And I'll, I'll put a direct link 
to um, James's uh, Instagram account in uh, this episode's show notes. So if you scroll down, you'll find a link, click on it, and you can DM James. I'm, I'm sure he'd love to hear from you and get your ideas. So um, you can find this episode on terriblehappytalks.com and it's also available on, on other platforms other than the one you're listening to right now, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, and Overcast, and whatever platform you prefer to listen on. Uh, it always helps me if you subscribe and leave a review. You know, if you don't, I'm just grateful that you listen, so thanks very much. Now, listen, James, I've got a present for you, brother. Our really? Yeah, our friends at Indosol, uh, they'll send you a pair of uh, flip-flops or slides made from repurposed motor vehicle tyres. Um, so I'll have to get your shoe size and post of the dress. But uh, Nick, wow. Riley and the Australian, Nick Riley and the Australian Indosol team are actually based up in Byron and they've just opened up a new shop up there as well. Yeah, you might even be able to go in the shop and pick a pair. I'll connect you with Nick. But otherwise, they'll post you out a pair of, of Indosols. Just in time for summer. Wow, so. man, that's so awesome, buddy. Thank you. I'm no worries, no thanks. Wow, I need a pair of slip ones. I never wear them, and I haven't got any. And it's either like high tops or nothing. And that's super generous of those guys as well, man. Thank you. No worries, no. They're they're awesome. They've been they give a, a pair of shoes to every guest, uh, and they've done so since episode thirty three. So I'm really grateful for their support, and they've just been unwavering. You know, and I just love what they do. I love, I love their philosophy and what they're trying to achieve. And plus, I think their their stuff looks rad as well. And man, I think that's us, bro. Is there anything you want to end on? It's been epic, dude. No, man. I feel like we've had a few endings, but like just keep talking. So, <laughs> no, I just appreciate you, mate, and um, what you're doing with your podcast and all the ones I've listened to sound pretty raw and real. And I think you're putting really awesome stuff out into the world, bro. So good on you, man, for doing it and you know and stepping up. You know, I'm doing it so consistently too. That that's amazing, man. So cheers to you, buddy. And thanks. It means the world to me, bro. All right, man. Well, stay on the line, but cue outro music. Hey, so before we kick off the podcast, I just want to talk about getting your morning kick in Belmont Coffee. Belmont is owned by skaters, barbers, tradies, and musicians. They came together with the idea of creating a co-pilot that's next to you on the late night drives, early mornings on the job site, or a midday pick-me-up, ethically sourced beans in a sustainable can, and ready to go when you are. Use the code THT to score a discount at belmont.com. That's Belmont, B-E-L-L-M-O-T-T dot com.